This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Mike Dillon. Mike's decades-long career as a vibraphonist, percussionist, and drummer has included work with Ani DeFranco, Les Claypool, Stanton Moore, and many others. He has also led bands in his own right, the latest of which is Punkadelic with Brian Haas on keys and Nikki Glaspie on drums. Their new record is called Inflorescence. When not on the road, Mike splits his time between New Orleans and Kansas City. We have some new content from some of our guests up on Patreon. We're featuring five transcriptions by Mike Malone, including Steve Gadd on We're In This Love Together by Al Jarreau, Anderson Pack on Leave the Door Open by Silk Sonic, and another recent guest, John J.R. Robinson on Rock With You by Michael Jackson. There's a lot more there, including a video by Bruce Becker discussing 16th note grooves three ways, and another by Brian Zach about jazz ride technique. You can access all this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash working drummer. So Mike is just one of these mad scientists who is always engaged in something creative and experimental, either as a sideman or leader or both. He's lived several musical lives on several scenes, and the journey continues. Just a quick note here, when he refers to Beignet, he's talking about the little dog that spent most of this interview on his lap. So here we go. Hope you dig. Mike Dillon. So you're in Oregon doing the, uh, you said it was the Pickathon Festival? Yeah, and that's with my band, Punkadelic, with Nikki Glassby on drums and Brian Haas and Jacob Fred on Tinder Roads, and I'm doing right. vibes and percussion. Yeah, awesome. So is this is this a new project, or has this been going for a while? It's been going for about three years now. It's a continuation of like the Mike Dillon band, and uh, which was a continuation of Go-Go Jungle with Go-Go Ray. Right. Which was a continuation of the Hairy Apes. Um, we were experienced with half a billy goat. And so it's like my thing, you know, that I do when I'm not out being a working drummer for people like Claypool or Ricky Lee. Right, you know? right. So, and like as as far as leading your own groups, um, it, it seems like over the years it's just been kind of this kaleidoscopic thing and, and some, you know, some personnel has come and gone and the, the names have uh, the names of the projects have changed. Um, but, uh, you know, your, your aesthetic, uh, is, <laughs> is always very much front and center in them. Yeah. And, and what's awesome is like, like since, you know, when I was talking to Shay the other day, he's connected us. Right. And, and I've been thinking about this for a minute because recently one of the percussionists in my band, Tiff Lamson just got the Shania Twain gig. Cool. And the guy who was playing drums, because for that that version of the band was called Mike Dillon and the Mallet Men, 
and we had Tiff on percussion and vibe, marimba. I was playing vibes and percussion, and we had Maxwell Zamanovic playing drums. While we were on that tour, he got the call because Matt Chamberlain had recommended him to do the Miranda Lambert gig. Jeez. So he went from playing with me in front of 50, you know, 50, 100 people, a little small club. His first gig was at the Smoothie King Arena in New Orleans, and he's been a drummer <laughs> ever since 2016, I think that was, or 17. Wow. Um, and then, like, so this summer, Tiff got the call to go do the Shania Twain gig, and she'd been playing with Peaches. Mm-hmm. And so Max texted me. You know, Nikki was Beyonce's drummer for ten years. So right, Max texted me, and he's like, "Yo, bro, you're going to start charging people to play in your drums. All the drummers keep getting arena rock gigs." <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you're, it's like your your groups it, it are, a good are joke. Your groups are proving to be these uh, <laughs> these uh, jumping off points into the big time. <laughs> it's like you know, because like you know, Chamberlain was my first drummer back in the old days. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, he's, you know, we all know what Matt Chamberlain's Matt Chamberlain's done in his badass career, right? And then Earl Harvin, who just mostly was recently here in the states again playing with with Phil doing that tour, and then you know, Gogo Race had a great career, so. I have been super blessed to play with like a long line of great drummers. Yeah. And, and, and the, dr- you know, the drums are the front and center of my aesthetic. You know, yeah, for sure. Of for my sure. band. Um, yeah. I, I was listening to the new record um, and, you know, Nikki, Nikki sounds fantastic. Um, and just the overall production of the record is fantastic. It's like, it's very natural. It's not like overdone. It just feels like being in a room with you guys. That's what Chad Mice, and I'm sure you know Chad. That's what yeah. he's looking for. I didn't realize and, that Chad engineered it, and man, that makes total sense. Did you record the tape? This one we didn't. We just, but he has all that old gear. And it, he was surprised how with the newest converters and you know all his old um, Electrodyne mic frees and stuff. He was like, right. "Wow, it really sounds close to tape." It was like. But yeah. we're about to do another record, and he is like, we're firing up the tape for the next Punkadelic record. Cool, cool. So, yeah, I uh, I got to uh, record with Chad years ago when, when we were doing Shay's first record, um, and we recorded in, in Chad's studio in Kansas City, and we did it to two-inch tape, and none of us had ever recorded to tape before. And, you know, we got set up, we got some sounds going, and we like we played through a song, and and it was like okay let's go let's go listen let's see what we got and he just he played it back and our like we were all just gobsmacked we couldn't believe how good it sounded yeah and and chad was like i'll never forget he was like they had this shit figured out 60 years ago <laughs> it's like yeah that's a perfect chad <laughs> that yeah. is totally what chad would say yeah yeah i mean yeah there's nothing like take we did i did rosewood with earl harvin Back in 2018, we did that one to tape. And uh, then we also did Suitcase Man to tape. So it seems like every couple of years we'll do one to tape and then we'll do one to Pro Tools. Well, he uses Logic. So, um, you know, but it, it, it's just like with musicians, you know, Chad's got the ears and he, he understands music. Yeah. So that was the other important thing to this record. I could be like, all right, I want the vibes to have like a Bobby Hutcherson Mill Jackson kind of thing, but with the way I'm running them through pedals. And I didn't have I don't have to say that to him anymore. I mean, right. His dad being a great B3 player, 
he'll just come back. When if I say anything like that, he'll be like, "Yeah, man, but we're gonna do you know this record." Like when Lou Donaldson was doing that. And, <laughs> right, and, right. Yeah, you know, and we go as far as to say the things that he would hear, you know, when we do a, do a good take. We, his dad told him how Lou Donaldson used to date. Keep that mother down. So every time we do a good take, we'd be like, or we get a good mix. Which Chad would look at me and I'll go, keep that mother down. You, know? <laughs> you, you got to have fun in the studio. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm I'm curious about Nikki because I I don't know very much about her. I mean I uh, obviously know that she did the big Beyonce gig for a long time. Um, does does she live in New Orleans? Like how how is she from there? How did you guys cross paths? She lives in Austin. Oh okay. Uh, but during the pandemic, there were clubs. You know, at six, four to six months in, people started like going losing their minds and needing music and. Yeah. Haas and I, that's how we started doing the punkadelic because I was always doing jazz gigs with Haas, whether it was Machi Paper kind of things, or we started playing with Johnny Vodakovich and doing, doing Nova Tet back in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was like, let's play. So it was actually James Singleton, Haas, and myself started doing gigs in parking lots of New Orleans. Uh, we did a gig at Linda Lighton's house in Kansas City. Adam Jones started having concerts in his house uh, on his porch in Kansas City. And like Arnie would join us. Uh, people were just super grateful to have music again. Yeah. And one time, and we heard that the Austin was doing uh, the Far Out Lounge was having shows because they had an outdoor situation. Mm-hmm. So we played, and Nikki came to the show. I said, like, "Whoa, Nikki!" And Nikki and I had always talked about playing music together because I've been seeing her ever since she left Beyonce and started working with Dumpster Funk, with Ivan Neville and Ian and all those guys, Tony Hall. Uh, We bumped into each other at festivals. As far back as 2006, I can remember 2008, whatever it was, her saying, I want to play punk rock with you, Mike D. (laughs) And um, so I had a... It was, it was Mardi Gras in New Orleans, like 2021. I was like, hey, we're playing at the Broadside. Same deal. This theater had a parking lot. They put a stage out in the parking lot, and people came and sat socially distant. And we were one of the first bands to do shows there, and, and crowds just started turning up. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone was paying nice ticket prices. So the musicians were getting paid. It was great. And Nikki drove over and played with Hoff and myself and, I, and the recently departed Brad Hauser and a few other people. And we had a great gig. And and that whole time during the pandemic when I was home, Chad and I had been recording all these records. So March 2021, Royal Potato Family record released three records that Chad and I did during the pandemic. And all those records I did with different drummers. I had Chamberlain send me send me tracks at Earl Harvin. I had John Paul from clutch. Um, go, go Ray played on a few tracks. And mm-hmm. I even had Stan Stanton's more send me a track, but his track didn't make it. Cause I don't know. It was recorded at a different resolution or something. Oh, okay. Other than that, all the remote recording things worked real nicely. And you know, I was like, all right, we need a tour. So Haas and I started first as a duo and then Nikki showed up at a gig. And we were like, 
she's like, I want, all right, I want to do a tour with y'all. And then Nikki did a tour with us. Mm-hmm. And next thing I know, that summer of 2021, I was like, this is really good. Yeah. We need to make a record. Yeah. So uh, March of 2022, wow, that's crazy. We went in the studio. And then by November of 2022, we had the vinyl. The official release was January of this year. Right. We started selling them at the end of 2022. And Nikki, back to the Nikki, she's a very popular in-demand drummer. I mean, she's a powerhouse. Yeah. She's, um, she, but she really values being a part of this band. This is her band, and she's a member of it now. And then in September, we're going to do the second record. She's going to play my birthday show on September 15th at the wow. Brick. And then at she the Brick in right Kansas City? Puppy and does, yeah, we're going to do a show at the Brick. And then, oh, man, that's great. Uh, and it's, yeah, Johnny Hamill's going to play first. It's going to be just like the old times. And then she flies out and does Snarky Puppy, something she's added to her. Man. Whether it's Snarky Puppy now, now or in power or Trouble No More. So she stays really busy, but I love playing with Nikki because she plays harder than any of the dudes I play with. <laughs> I mean, she. I mean, not that, not that gender matters anymore. We know that it doesn't, but it's still like she's like, I know all you guys think this is a boys' club, right? She kicks my ass every night, and it's a wonderful thing being pushed because yeah. that that's what I need to stay hungry and to keep practicing. And um, yeah, I feel so like it's, it's a great little trio. You're um, as as a performer, I feel like you're. Um, sort of uh constantly in search of uh you know fifth gear in terms of energy and expression and and you know finding that place uh and it seems like historically you've surrounded yourself with musicians who like you said kick your ass and push you into that fifth gear yeah uh that probably goes back to going back to going to north texas and, and meeting earl harvin and matt chamberlain and all the other great drummers that that flocked to New York, to uh, Denton, Texas, back in the back when I did back in '84. Right. And, right. I didn't realize you so, went to North Texas. Did you? Did you graduate from there? I was like, like, like a lot of people. I was about a year. I, I think I just needed to do my student teacher teaching and pass some music ther- theory. Uh, what do they call it? Not bars, but like the compass. You know, pass two of the music theory classes and i would have graduated with a music ed degree right i played in the one one o'clock lab band on percussion there when they still had percussionists in the lab band Mm -hmm. and um i played in the nine o'clock lab band on drum set so and i was in the drum line that one pace it twice you know if you like dr john wooten in the band in the drum line and lalo davila was our teacher and julie davila who julie sutton was also in the pit with me Right, and, and that place was instrumental for my percussion concept and my aesthetic. Because here I was, a kid out of the suburbs, in the first week of school, being introduced to congas, mm-hmm. walking up to a conga drum and going, "That's how you hit that thing," and getting a slap the first time I tried, right. and then being able to play gamelan. Still, <laughs> I played steel pans and Doc Chitroma's ensemble, and 
I mean, it, it was such a great learning experience. I love college. Like a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't like college. I, you know, where or whatever. But for me, I, I absolutely loved it. I just started gigging so much that I never got my degree, which is sort of silly. Right. I mean, it's it's um, depending on where you go to college, depending on the program, it, it could be a place where you, you know, focus intently on a very specific thing, or it could be a place that just kind of blows your head open with all kinds of different um, genres, instruments. Um, so that it, it seems like that was uh, the the period for you that kind of turned you into this uh, uh, percussively omnivorous uh, <laughs> player. Yeah, and, and it was great. And I've tried to explain this in in, in interviews, and every time, uh, you know, I thought like for Drum Magazine, it came out wrong, and I could see how it could ostensibly piss off the current head of North Texas percussion <laughs> department if they read it. But I said something like it was also a great place to learn how to find your individuality, not just do the same thing that under other 150 drummers were doing that. And I didn't mean that disparagingly. I just meant like I realized real quickly that there were way better drum set players there than me, be it Matt Cameron or Harvin or Dan Wojciechowski, who was the one o'clock drummer. But I had mallets and hand percussion and i was like cool i'm gonna thrive on mallets and hand percussion and you know when i was a freshman Shatroma had me with lee howard stevens playing you know a tchaikovsky children's suite for marimba that i think he he had yeah. arranged yeah yeah and, and and he critiqued critiqued me so this idea that i'm just like this punk rock guy that just started learning on my own is 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 frankly a lie that maybe i tried to propagate that myth to make me have more <laughs> punk rock cred. Right. But really, I was a, a dork-ass music school uh, in, in high school. I quit <laughs> sports, and I joined the Houston, I was in the Houston Youth Symphony. I practiced every day. So that's why I ended up playing mallets a lot. It was in the drum line playing in the pit. You know? right. I wasn't great, but I, I didn't suck. But that was pretty much all I did in North Texas, like practice four mallet marimba stuff. Now, the jazz stuff was a little more daunting, though, because... You know, I don't know if, if you can relate to this, but a lot of percussionists along the way at some point have this uh, epiphany. Like, we grow up playing in drumline. We grow up doing uh, four mallet shit. I mean, the stuff the high school kids are doing now, on four, like, we thought we were badass if we were playing a Kiko Abe piece. Right. You know, playing frogs back in 1984. <laughs> But those Frogs. kids are doing that when, when they're like freshmen, you know, Yeah. in high school now. I mean, the, the level of these kids today is incredible. But that being said, there's still that divide between being legit or being a jazz player. Yeah. So I was, I, I was, you know, I was in the jazz program taking jazz courses. I took jazz theory from Dan Hurley, who was also the director of, of, of the Zebras and a great keyboardist and so i learned a lot from him i took improv from jack peterson who wrote a great book that was used at north texas but that first improv class that that year of improv i just got really intimidated so when i would go in and play like for my jazz band auditions i i could play congas well enough to where that was not a problem. And then, the, like, Satroma and those guys would hear me 
try to improvise over changes. And I remember they just sort of start laughing because I was blowing the changes, you know, I could, mm-hmm. I could play the head or whatever, but then I would just play some. And I remember one guy goes, wow, man, you sound like you're playing some out shit Korea shit. But, you know, I didn't have a clue to what I was doing, but that was okay. And then I got enough of it. I knew what a two, five, one was. I knew what a tritone substitution was. I knew the basic, but then one day when I, like years later, after just focusing on percussion and having record deals and touring and doing the rock and roll thing, I decided to start playing vibes again. And mm-hmm. it was really because of seeing a Thelonious Monk movie, you know, Straight No Chaser. And it was at that point that I got serious about learning how to, to solo over changes and taking lessons again. And mm-hmm. it was at that point, the epiphany was, oh my God, you mean you got to play by ear? Because I'd be playing <laughs> with horn players. They're like, hear it, man. You know, I'd be yeah. trying to play song for my father and maybe and counting, you know, the bars instead of just hearing when it, you know, does the change. Yeah. So, and I, and I think there's just this, like, I know some great players. There's this guy who plays with Spies, plays trumpet in um, Grupo Fantasma and Brownout. Well-respected Texas educator. When he walks into these conferences, people literally pay him mass respect. He's a known educator, great chops. But Spies is like, come on, bro, play the B-flat blues for me. You can play the highest note on the trumpet and and have a beautiful tone. He's like, bro, I can't play the fucking blues. Mm. So it was at that point in my life that I was like, I'm going to learn how to play the blues. And, And that was the first changes for me that I eventually got to be like, like I can hear it, but that's been the lifelong journey. And, and I think that maybe I'm sure with music education now that, 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 that that part is just as important as being able to read anything that's in front of you. Yeah, for sure. So at, at that point, like when you sort of like recommitted to the vibes and, and, you know, committed to like, learning changes and learning how to blow over over uh jazz progressions at that point are are you wanting to be uh like a bobby hutcherson a milt jackson like a straight ahead jazz vibes player oh yeah i still am i mean that's what i practice i studied with i found bill ware in early 2000 and started taking lessons with him in new york city and and he got me like just some great conceptual things like that that uh, he had learned from his teachers, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Billy, uh, I want to say Billy Taylor, but that's not his last name. Barry Harris, he passed away a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So his whole concept that he taught me came from Barry Harris. And, and it was a very simple concept of how to get comfortable with changes. Yeah. And it was basically what everyone else has done. You practice in all 12 keys, all the scales, all the time. And, and it's simple, but you just start doing that shit because if you're going to play the changes, you got to know all 12 chords right. to simplify it. And I think and, and on, it's funny. on on vibes but, or on any other instrument, it's a it's a process of connecting your ear to your body because like your, yeah. your mind's ear and your muscle memory have to talk to each other. <laughs> and it's a long yeah. process to connect them. It is a long process, as you know. And and then the other thing I was doing, the sax player I was working with all the time, Skerek, was like, you got to do ear training exercises. 
And that was the thing that probably kept me from graduating in North Texas mm. because I passed the keyboard and the, the written part of the theory, but I needed to do the ear training part where, you know, like I sat next to Brian Jones, who's now the Detroit Symphony principal percussionist. I was like, how come he can hear everything and write it out perfectly when they're playing four part corrals? Yeah. It's because he had perfect pitch. Right. And that's why he's a great timpanist. Right. And he was also a trombonist, you know? So like, that's sort of the thing. Like when you're at these behemoth music schools, sometimes you just don't know, unless you have a really great teacher and you're honest enough to say, I don't know why I'm confused here. You know, like what I should have done back then was like gone to the music lab and just did hours and hours of ear training. Because like M Marco Benevento said to me, he's like, yep, I spent hours in the Berkeley music lab. You know, there's 12 notes and I learned them really well. <laughs> those of us that don't have absolute pitch or perfect pitch, we have to develop our relative pitch. Yeah. Yeah. And every vibraphonist has to do it. Because every horn player does it, and uh, it's just what you do. And at first, it's slow, and then you get to where you can pick out, learn things by ear. You don't have to be looking at everything for a chart, right? You know, and then you start making your own charts. So, so for drummers, um, you know, it's 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 not necessary per se for us to. Um, learn music theory and do all that ear training and learn how to blow over changes it certainly helps but in terms of being able to improvise and you know making improvisation a part of your playing um what's what's your perspective on doing that on on the drums or on percussion instruments that that you know don't interact with harmony the same way vibes or, or other instruments do because i think for a lot of drummers the idea of improvisation, whether it's in the jazz context or not, the idea of improvising is very intimidating and somewhat uh, inaccessible to a lot of drummers. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it makes me immediately think of playing with Johnny Badakovich. Mm. He's been another huge, um, you know, I moved to New Orleans in the early 2000s, started playing with Johnny in 2003. And he is such a melodic drummer. Um, he doesn't, at, at 74, he doesn't have the chops that he had when he was 34 and could play like Tony Williams did back then. Mm -hmm. But his sense of melody and improvisation has never stopped. I mean, he's so musical on the drums. And um, what he told me he did, he's like, yeah, bro, when I started teaching Stanton Moore, he was so tight and played like a metal drummer that I just had him play Mary Had a Little Lamb on the drums for a month. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, with, with Brian Blade, who came in, he said he had Brian do another thing. And so I know that a lot of drummers that study with Johnny, and even in North Texas, they made us play the melody. Like I studied with Henry Oxtell on drums. He made us play the melody from 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 tunes on the drums to mm -hmm. become more melodic and not just be top machines. And then they would say little things like, well, you know, Elvin could play guitar really well, or, you know, so-and-so is a great pianist. And as an 18-year-old who didn't know shit about drums except that I loved them and I wanted to be a good drummer and I, I was going to go to North Texas to learn how to do it, I just didn't understand that 
drummers could have perfect pitch mm-hmm. and play melodic instruments and be amazing musicians. They could write songs. I mean, back then, writing a song was like, how do you write a song? I have no idea. I can play a paradiddle. Leave me the fuck alone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But then you learn, like, yeah, like, all these great drummers, so many of them, like, you know, like Brian Blade or whoever can just play a lot of other instruments. I mean, Nikki crushes guitar. Wow. She can sit down, you know, or Sput. Look at the way Sput from Ghost Note plays Rhodes. I mean, so... And what I what I hear you saying is like, you know, obviously learning other instruments is is beneficial. But like going back to uh, Johnny V having Stanton play "Mary Had a Little Lamb" on the drums, like in in order to sort of get a foot in the door with improvisation, you you can start with something so simple, so basic. Yes. Um. And yes, and that, build right. build improvised ideas off that, and I think that's that's where the best improvising comes from. It doesn't come from a shitload of notes or even complex harmony. It comes from like uh, clear ideas. Exactly. I mean that that Johnny. We we have this song called Pops and Nola Tet, and it, it it's a beautiful ballad and. And even though I wrote it for my dad when he passed away, half the time I solo on it, I just sound like a guy that's trying to do something slick with the chords. Like, that's mm-hmm. what I think. I don't mm-hmm. care who, how many people clap. I just go, oh, that was a bunch of just, you know, what you just described, a bunch of notes. It's not really like to the core of what it should be about. Yet every time Johnny takes a solo, he puts down his brushes and half the times he'll grab some mallets and he'll just play this beautiful it sounds like an orchestra like just mm. simple ideas but we're using dynamics the palms will swell his left foot will do something dynamically on the on the hi-hat and and all his all four limbs are this beautiful melodic improvising and we'll joke and be like johnny played the best solo <laughs> out of all four of them. like and he was on drums with three tones or whatever right you know? right like and you can astounding. you can have you can have a room just like transfixed and eating out of the palm of your hand with the simplest idea if you have the security and the courage to just commit to it and let it be what it is and um play with with nothing to prove i guess and it's such oh, a hard nail thing it. that's it nothing to prove yeah nothing to prove because that's like the dark side it's the side that makes all of us drummers practice and get better right which on a the, on a technical level <laughs> that's the dark side <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's not really the dark side i mean believe me i love it i saw tony williams do a clinic did you see that clinic he did in kansas city in 97 by chance no at, i wasn't i wasn't there yet Okay, so he did a great clinic, and he said, people said I was a natural, but does this look like a harmonica? I practiced 10 hours a day to figure out how to do this. Mm -hmm. But he said, like, I looked at what Philly Joe did, Papa Joe, Art Blakey, Max Roach did, what everyone was doing before me, and I came up with my – I learned it, and then I came up with my own ideas. So, (laughs) like, like you have to do the, the tradition and study everything. But I think at some point, a better way to look at it is it's not the dark side. The dark side is that voice that comes in your head that's always trying to prove yourself to other people. Because yep. if you're doing that, you're not going to make music. You're mm-hmm. just going to be proving yourself. Mm. It's like becoming like, you got to become this, like, that's where meditation and all these spiritual exercises 
And as musicians, we're good at it because we're just hermetic, like monks. Yeah. If you go sit in a practice room for 10 hours, you're pretty much just hanging out by yourself. Right. I mean, they, they don't give us social skills when we're at North Texas practicing all the time. We come out of four <laughs> years at North Texas and went, I'm in a studio and I have already have tinnitus at 22 because they didn't tell us about hearing protection. Right. You know, you, you become this mutant. Yes. So. And, and you're like, you're, you're in this sort of antisocial practicing trance for however many yeah. years. And then you're expected to go out into the world and like interact with humans. <laughs> um, like I have to talk. Like I remember Claypool called me looking for a, a keyboard player and, and he said, yeah, I know he can play, but is, is it a good hang? Yeah. And I was like, I was like, yeah, he's a great guy. Cause that's what, that's the next level. They don't, I don't know if they're teaching like, music etiquette at North Texas, but maybe you or, or I need to be like, come up with a course syllabus on like, all right, you've practiced, you've become this mutant. Now you're going to have to learn how to get along with other people on yeah. the road. Yeah. And it's one of my criteria for this podcast. Cause you know, like people, people get recommended to us pretty often. And, and if somebody hits me up and is like, yo, you should interview this person. My first question is, are they a good talker? Like, am I going to have an interesting conversation with this person? I don't care what their resume is. I don't care how they play. Right. Like, this is a podcast. They're going to talk. So can yeah. they fucking talk? <laughs> I have no problem talking, especially after a quadruple espresso. So <laughs> make me calm down if I'm getting a little overbearing. <laughs> no, 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 man. We're, we're here for it. For a long time, you've sort of had uh, a dual citizenship between Kansas City and New Orleans um, and, you know, obviously traveling around a lot. But those those seem to be the two hubs from which you operate. Um, I spent seven years in Kansas City from 03 to 2010. I think you were pretty well cleared out of there by then. Um, but, yeah. you know, I've also spent a lot of time in New Orleans and th there are two cities that are known for a certain thing. Like they're known as jazz cities, but um, they both have like, you know, under that surface, they both have such a vibrant um, creative scene, not just in terms of music, but I think in terms of art in general. Um, so I, I just want to hear you talk a bit about like how those two cities kind of helped shape your sensibility uh, and your, your playing as a musician. Yeah. I ended up can in Kansas city in 92 uh, by just a unfortunate accident, really mm -hmm. uh, had to leave Texas. And as soon as I got there, I just, well, Billy goat moved to Kansas city in 92. The drugs had taken me, had, had taken the band down. I had to get out of Texas to, the drug use was out of control. So mm -hmm. I went to Kansas City to clean up and I reformed the band and, and started playing there. And um, right away, I started by accident meeting a lot of killer different musicians. 
And I think the reason I ended up in it wasn't really an accident. It was it was a disaster. Okay. <laughs> I ended up in Kansas City because of Texas became a disaster. But when we, you know, when you tour, you go to these towns where you love. Like the first time we played, the second time we played Lawrence, we had a sold out show. Mm-hmm. The second time we played Kansas City at the at the Shadow, it was a sold out show. Mm-hmm. And then we started playing Grand Emporium. So we made friends. It, it, it was. When I was like, I got to get out of Texas, Kansas City. I was like, I'm going to Kansas City. And within three or four years, no, within, yeah, that was 92, September of 92. Within, by, by 94, I was playing my vibraphone that I bought from a guy in Denton a lot. And I met Brian Hicks mm-hmm. at the 51st Street Coffee House. Yeah. And, and and Gus Seifert, who now is Roger Waters' musical director, yeah, he was there at those jams. That badass guitar player, uh, not his name is Max. What's his name? He'll come to me in a second. He ended up playing with the Killers. He was there. There was just, oh Jake, plus, <laughs> Jake, and then then Arnie was there. Arnie Young, Mark, man, Arnie Young, Mark Sutherland, and, and all these musicians. But it was really Brian who was like, okay. They knew I was in a band that was popular and traveling, and that I could play percussion. I was hanging out with uh, Pat Conway, yeah, and we had we had this conga teacher named Augustine. I don't know if you ever got to meet Augustine. He was a rumbero from Havana. So like, the Billy Goat House was right next to where Mark Sutherland and Pat Conway lived. So Pat would bring over Augustine, and then a few other guys. Uh, Bird Fleming would come over. We all the hand drum thing was happening. Then I started going to these jazz jams on vibes, and I would sneak it up. Like I said, get lost on song from my father. But Brian would be like, "Hey man, that was pretty good. You know, <laughs> uh, I'll come over tomorrow to your house and show you some things." And he started like mentoring me. Yeah. He, he wrote out my first blue, B flat blues with some cool little substitutions, yeah. and I got that in my head. And, and, and if I could, playing. if I could stop you, like you, you just, you just rattled off like over a dozen names uh, on the Kansas City scene, many of whom are still there, um, but most of whom are are not um, really part of like the straight ahead jazz scene in Kansas City, which they're like that's a, a super strong thing, always has been there, but there oh, are all yeah, these musicians who are doing other shit, a. And B, like they they brought you into the fold, and like you were saying, you kind of like shat the bed at the jazz jam. But Brian was like, like it's a nurturing environment. It's not like a cutthroat environment. Like some people tend to think that uh, a certain scene or a jazz scene or a city can be. Yeah, I mean, if I w- went down to like the foundation room and say Bobby Watson was there, yeah, or or or, or, or one. I mean, you know, that's what was cool about Brian. You know. Brian would hang out with us weirdos, but then he would be playing with Danny Embry or or, or with Rich Hill or the more straight-ahead guys. I mean, Brian could do that. Uh, Same with Arnie. He he would go do those gigs and then, like, you know, Todd Strait. I mean, I knew who all those guys were, the the guys playing with Karen Allison and Bob Bowman, and, and I would go listen to those guys. But yeah, you know, I knew I wasn't qualified to play vibes with those guys by any means of the imagination. Mm-hmm. But it was Brian who was like, "You want to learn how to play jazz vibes? Learn every note on Bags Meets West." You know that Mill Jackson <laughs> West yeah. Montgomery record. Yeah, yeah. And and the first solo I transcribed off of that by ear 
was the West Montgomery guitar solo on SKJ. But luckily, like what you mentioned earlier, Kansas City had all these venues. And just like New Orleans, especially back in the 90s, music was vital and important to the community. And whether it was at that little club down at 39th and, and State Line called yeah, Jimmy Jigger. Oh, right. I remember that. And there was Jardines yeah. on. And uh, then there was Jardines. Like they would, there were, you know, they, there were places that would give you a chance to come and be weird on a Tuesday night. Right. Right. Uh, and, and the Malachi Papers, we started playing. And then, you know, Bill McCamey started playing with us. And so, so I, I started learning. That yeah. was when. And I'm, I I'm reminded of practicing like your your experience in Kansas City of sort of like um, exposing yourself to to these these hardcore straight ahead jazz guys um, and sort of absorbing some of that. It, it seems similar to what you went through at North Texas, where you're like, OK, there's these there's all these people doing this thing and I can absorb some of that thing. But I, like I'm not I'm not cut out to like fully do that thing so i'm gonna sort of discover and commit to um the ways that i'm different and you know what what i want to do yeah precisely i mean if it was 1950 you'd have no it'd be like being in a rock band was today i mean that was the rock and roll music right you either played art you know rock and roll or you know or whereas like if you grew up on Led Zeppelin, like kids today grew up on, you know, they, what do you, what do you mean? There was music without a hip hop beat on it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so like, like all along, like, even though like, I love so like, so like I'm in some ways the most conservative music listener on the planet. When I'm driving, I'm going to listen to some monk. I'm going to listen to some fifties jazz. Mm -hmm. I'm going to listen to, you know, Eric Dolphy, like out to lunch. Like that record really gave me a lot of freedom. Like, hearing the way Bobby played on out to lunch yeah, was like something that we wanted to do in 1994. And mm -hmm. we had Brian playing with us. So Brian kept saying, all right, that's cool. We'll do that. But like learn this song too. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like practice straight ahead, but at the club do your weird free jazz. And I think there was a connection between free jazz and punk rock for sure that the in terms of energy and taking it to that fifth gear that a lot of us could identify it when i would go see when i saw the art ensemble chicago for the first time and and what don moye was doing it was like seeing the bad brains for the first time in 1986 <laughs> and what you know earl hudson was doing and yeah. you know hr hr was very similar to roscoe mitchell it was just a, a different music form, but the intensity was the same. Right. And I think a lot of people that that's why a lot of people that came out of the punk rock scene started. There were, there was a connection between like, like say Thurst, Thurston Moore and Sonic youth loves mm -hmm. free jazz yeah. and has put a lot of it out and is a, a huge aficionado of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you wanted to be on his label, you wouldn't send you some straight ahead stuff. You, you know, or, or the same thing could be said for the guys in Tortoise and the whole Chicago scene. So that's what was cool about the Kansas City scene. It was a good place for me to start finding my voice on the vibes. Yep. I had the same experience. Um, you know, I, I was much more sort of embedded in the straight ahead jazz world of Kansas City. But um, 
it was still it was still open enough and nurturing enough for me to you know find my voice or at least start to find it um and you know it was it was given a place on that scene right um and it's it's amazing when people that you admire and care about and really love playing with sort of validate your voice like they see you developing they hear you turning into a thing and then they're like oh yeah i want more of that you know i've i value that voice as part of my music yeah and and as you probably know the older you get you know the next thing you know like you keep practicing then you can i found myself on straight ahead gigs doing nothing but standards and right you know say in 1995 when we had a i would do that's the funny thing in 95 no 96 sutherland had a straight ahead gig at tom Fullery's at this place on the plaza yeah and all we played was standards all day and and I loved it and I sucked at it. But you kept doing it. And then like the next time you nowadays when I, I can play standards and I like the way I sound on standards because that process of what we talked about connecting, you know, your ear to your muscle memory, then you realize it, it's all music, whether it's Elliot Smith song, who I really got into and helped me become a more lyrical vibraphonist, mm-hmm. or is it you know, just in time which is a song I've done with Ricky Lee lately that, 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 uh, you know, Mike Maneri played for her on the record. Right. And, you know, and and that, this was three months ago. I'm on the bandstand at Birdland with Maneri, Russell Malone, like, like all these monsters playing congas, but I'm sitting there watching Maneri play and just like the light bulbs went off about like, you know, part of the thing about playing free jazz is like, you're just blowing so intense like Peter Brotsman is like your, your concept. But then like, you know, when you're playing with a singer, man, do that. You're just going to sound stupid. Yeah. You just got to play a beautiful couple of notes to, to, to make Ricky Lee sound good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, um, I don't know. That's why I like being a percussionist and a drummer. He never stopped learning. Yeah. And, and thank God there are musicians that that are cool they're always going to be the guys like i fuck you i don't care but well i don't want to help you and i'll cut you let's play you know 20 years ago i couldn't play rhythm changes now when i'm doing one of my little free jazz gigs i get i get the feeling when i go into rhythm changes the guys are like really you want to play that square shit i'm like <laughs> yeah i want to play rhythm changes you know i'll yeah. start with airmail airmail special <laughs> and, and then you know, I'm, and I'm like, let's see if I can nail the bridge. I've been playing this song for 20 years. Right. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. so when um, when did you decide to sort of uh, relocate to New Orleans and make that the hub? And why? Um, because it was New Orleans. And I was about to move to New York, where my girlfriend lived at the time. And I was on tour with Stanton and Charlie Hunter. Right, the, uh, the Garage Atois thing. Garage Atois and Skerrick. And Ani DeFranco, who I just signed on to play with, had offered me her apartment in New Orleans. Oh, wow. And I said, I said, uh, wow. I just got offered an apartment in New Orleans. And I was going through a divorce with my first wife. And they're like, dude, move to New Orleans. And, you know, it's like, all right, move to New, or- New York. We're rent 3000 bucks a month. And and it costs two hundred dollars to some cartridge to get your vibes to a gig. Yeah. I moved to New Orleans where like my first gig there 
was with George Porter Jr. and Johnny Vodakovich at the Maple Leaf. <laughs> and I was just like, all right, I'm going to do the New Orleans thing. And, and that became like the next level of, for my development as a musician, was living in New Orleans. Because mm-hmm. it's, got, it's got the funk scene, it's got the straight ahead scene, it's got the brass band scene, it's got a really cool rock and roll scene. It's, it, it has a little bit of everything yeah and, and besides just becoming a better player playing with all these different guys and 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 women there uh, it was a great place just to learn how to write music i had a lot of fun like i had started writing music for my bands and the harry apes back in 97 98 when billy go broke up and that that was when I started doing my own bands, right? I wrote all the music or, and it wasn't just a collaboration. So I, I just felt like there were so many influences to, to soak from in, in new Orleans. And, yeah. And then that's when I really started working with James Singleton. He was like the Brian Hicks was in, in Kansas city. James Singleton was, and still is uh, my big musical brother and mentor in Kansas and New Orleans. Mm-hmm. I think I said, Brian, Brian, Brian in Kansas city, James in New Orleans, James and Johnny both had played with everyone. Yeah. Like, like James left North Texas and moved to John, uh, got a gig with Gatemouth Brown when he was 18, but he loved Johnny Vodakovich and he quit Gatemouth to play with Johnny V and they would be backing up everyone from Milt Jackson to Dizzy Gillespie. You know, whenever those guys came to New Orleans, that was one of the rhythm sessions that was used. So James is is a real jazz straight ahead guy. He played every song in all twelve keys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he can do he can do a straight ahead gig, um, and that's what he's done his whole career. But he's also hyper creative. And he likes doing his own music, which runs more ran more along the lines of what we've been trying to do in Kansas City and doing, you yeah. know, doing our Malachi papers and stuff. So there was a super strong creative music scene in New Orleans, just because there's a, such a large number of people that moved to New Orleans from all all backgrounds. And at first, it would be. Um, what was the first club we all played for that kind of weird, you know, I'll, I'll call it free jazz. I, I'm sort of like Nick Payton. I've adopted Nick Payton's word, uh, belief. I don't really like the word jazz anymore. You know, mm-hmm. we all know it's black, black American music and it needs to be stated as such. Mm-hmm. But there was a whole scene of people playing what people might just call out, out music. Right. And um, I, I see it just as beautiful music that, and James is sort of the patron saint of that scene in New Orleans. And a, a lot of clubs and spots were happening in New Orleans, in the Bywater, um, some places uptown. But the one that comes to most recent memory was this little place called the Sidebar. And there's a curator named Andy who um, would bring in different people from all over the world. And, you know, from Hami Drake to, I mean, um, I saw Hamid, I saw the great drummer who uh, played with Dolphy. Why am I spacing his name? Han Binnick. Oh, yeah. You know, guys like that would come. And sometimes different, you know, James would play with those guys sometimes. 
So on a local level, people like Helen Gillet, you know, Hoss would come down, Rob Cambry. Whenever I was in town off of tours, there would always be some Tuesday night. It was called the Open Ears at, at the Blue Nile. That was the, the free jazz thing on Tuesday nights. Uh, there, there was a thing on Wednesday night that happened in another club. And it was different musicians put together by these curators that were fans of Peter Brodsman, of that kind of music, of Sun Ra, of the art ensemble. Right. So that became, and, and the level of musicianship was really outstanding. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the thing about New Orleans that uh, doesn't exist as much in Kansas City. It's like there's, you know, in, in addition to the people that live in New Orleans and make their home there and play all kinds of gigs there, there are constantly people just coming in and out of New Orleans, visiting there. They just yeah. want to spend time there and soak up some of it and leave a little bit of themselves. So like you said, people from all over the world, all different genres and disciplines, all different instruments, um, and, uh, you know, it, it's it's cliche to say that New Orleans is a melting pot, but that's that's a perfect illustration of how it's just this constant churn of creatives of all types. And if you just spend time in New Orleans, like through osmosis, all that shit <laughs> is going to work itself into you and into it, the scene. It, it really does. I had an apartment. I still have it above Checkpoint Charlie's, which is right the corner of Esplanade Decatur. So... You practice all day when you're not on tour. You might have a gig. And if you don't have a gig, you just walk down Frenchman Street. You, different things would come at your psyche into right. your earballs. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you're writing some weird song that's an amalgamation of all these things you're hearing. Yeah. So it really is a gumbo. So, yeah. Um, yeah, did New you, Orleans has been great that way. Did you watch the series uh, Treme, that HBO series? I did watch it. Uh, I didn't watch all of it in the same way as I that I watched The Wire. Right. That, that director's, I think that's one of the greatest TV, made for TV shows ever. Agreed. Uh, and a lot of my friends were in the Treme, including James. He was mm -hmm. in it. Johnny was in uh, uh, a lot of the brass bands. And, and, and when I was living there, first living there, they were always closing down streets to have shoots. So I'd be like, God darn Treme, you took my parking place again. <laughs> all grumpy. But um, yeah, well, for the, for the those, got, go ahead. For, for people who haven't been to New Orleans um, or haven't spent much time there, you know, people who live there may disagree with me, but I, I think the show Treme is, is a great illustration of what New Orleans is really like because it, it touches on the shit you know about, you know, the history, the straight ahead jazz, all that, but like it really dives into the rest of it. And there is so much of the rest of it from a musical perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a culinary perspective, from um, a demographic perspective. Yeah. I'm, I mean, that's the main thing. One of the biggest things I love about New Orleans is you don't just have like neighborhoods that are sectioned by like, old school racist redlining. Yeah. I mean, they have their own racial inequalities. We all know that and problems. But one thing it is not is it's not um, divided as far as like where right. people live. Like everyone are together, all walks of life uh, roll together. And if you're walking down Frenchman Street, you'll hear a brass band at one place. And then that, that show, Treme, really highlighted what was happening with the, trad jazz scene at the spotted cat mm -hmm. i mean 
one of the kids who ended up joining my band in 2014 was a regular on the TV show because he played the Spotted Cat every Monday night. Yeah. And he, he's this young kid with perfect pitch. He grew up in New Orleans, went to NOCA, the same school that Trombone Shorty and all those kids went to, mm-hmm. that Ellis started, Marcella started many years ago. And that school is incredible. Right. That's where John Batiste went to school. That's an incredible school that had people like Clyde Kerr and Kent Jordan, all these great musicians who were also great teachers pass on their tradition. And then these young kids are like, they they, they know every jazz tune on the planet by the time they're 18. Right. Like the way Gus was, just incredible players. But then they're playing at Spotty Cat with this singer who's like, grew up singing punk rock, but actually has a voice. Right. Her face is tatted and sh- her name's Mashea. And they're making this weird trad music. It's like a reinvention of shit that like the Palm Court Jazz Band is still doing every Monday with 90 year old guys, some of them who hung out with the old school cats back in the day. Right. So and then an you then you walk music. down then you walk down Canal Street and you hear like bounce music blasting from yeah. the <laughs> Like exactly. I had no idea about bounce music until I watched Treme. Like Treme introduced bounce music to me, and I think to a lot of a lot of other people. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of bounce music because that's like a whole other thing. It's like we play these gigs at the Blue Knob upstairs on Friday or Saturday, play till midnight, and then all of a sudden DJ Black Pearl starts playing the bounce stuff, and then while I'm loading vibes down. Two-story flight of stairs. That same stairway, the bounce crowd is coming up. Right. They're like, "What the hell is that?" Right. I'm like, but they know it's an instrument, and it's New Orleans, so they're not like making the stupid joke that I endure all the time, and probably you do too. What's that thing you're rolling out? Is that a gurney? You got a body on there? (laughs) I just keep my mouth shut. Do you know? uh, Do you know Nick Mancini? Yeah, I know Nick. He's a great guy. He tells this great great story about like you know for years and years and years. Um, he, uh, he, you know, he would, he would be rolling his vibraphone into a gig and, you know, some passerby would be like, oh, wow, a xylophone. And, you know, he, it got to the point where he just stopped correcting him and, and whatever, just let it pass. So like, you know, hundreds of times somebody's like, oh, a xylophone. And then, uh, f- uh, for a certain gig, he brought his marimba and he was rolling his marimba into a gig and a passerby was like, oh, cool, a vibraphone. <laughs> oh my God, that's incredible. <laughs> of course it happened that way. thing i wanted to ask you about was uh was peregrine um yes so you're you're married to uh peregrine honig who is an amazing uh visual artist you know if if anybody who's listening if you google peregrine honig you will quickly see that she is uh, a known and celebrated thing in the contemporary art world 
So whenever I talk to someone who is, uh, whose, whose partner is also, you know, a creative, usually they're, you know, with another musician, but in, in your case, I'm curious how uh, you know you and you and Peregrine are just so intensely creative in such different ways, and I'm wondering um, how you influence each other from from your various uh, disciplines. Peregrine is like beignet to my <laughs> art. She calms me down. She makes me more focused, and she really makes has has not. She hasn't made me do anything. She's challenged me to become to slow down a little bit and not just destroy everything in my wake. <laughs> and, and, and and my art has deepened because of it. Mm-hmm. Straight up. I mean, Rosewood, that album is pretty much a result of being around her and seeing her paint all the time. And and and, and instead of everything just being like like record it and do it. And this is the way it is. Take time with recording. Like the way she takes time with her oil paintings. Yeah. She's, this series she's working on now, she's been working on for two years and she's is like out with me right now, but she's like, I got to get back to my studio. I got to get back to my <laughs> studio. And we both have that thing. Like, like if I don't practice, you know, cause I've been studying Tabla for 22 years with the look data. I do a, a zoom lessons every other week. I have to be ready. So mm-hmm. if I don't get to practice, I get grumpy. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have that. She understands me. She's not like previous, like, like we understand the creative um, journey, but yeah, she's just helped me become a more mature artist. And I'm writing a book right now. And that's really been fun. Oh, wow. Because during the pandemic, she challenged me. So I'll tell these stories about the old days. And, or if I write something on Facebook, people have always been like, you got to write a book. Oh my God. So I'm actually well into the book. We worked on it for two hours today. Hmm. It It's intense. There's moments where she's like, that sucked. No, just another boring druggy story. So hmm. she makes me pick my words and pick out the best moments. Yeah. And then we've been writing songs together. The same thing. It's just, it's fun having a creative partner that you can collaborate with. Yeah. And it, it was our creativity that brought us together. I mean, we've been friends forever. Um, I, if you would have told me seven years ago I was going to be married to Peregrine Honig, I would have told you, you're fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> what, what drug are you on? No way. It'll be a cold day in hell. But but here I am. <laughs> She's laughing in the background. And we're married. And um, it, it, it really is wonderful. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. We, we talk a lot on the podcast about um... – you know, balancing your career with your relationship, um, whatever, you you know, whatever your relationship is, whoever you're with. um, And a a common theme among everyone who is doing it successfully is that their partner, um, like you said, helps them be better at what they do. And, you know, your partner doesn't even have to be a creative or an artist to to do that. If they if they hold you accountable to, you know, be your best self, the best version of the musician you want to be, um, that's where you know that's where real growth and and real um, uh, I think health as a couple um, happens. Um, so yeah, I've I've interviewed so many people who are who who have that who have that in a partner, and then to have it 
in a partner who's also a creative um, has has got to be just uh, incredibly rewarding. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And as you know, the hard part is being on tour and being away from your partner. Yeah. I mean, uh, I basically have been out on tour since April 20th this year, did Jazz Fest and flew right to rehearsal with Les. Mm-hmm. And then that was a two-month tour with the Frog Brigade. Harrigan came out, I saw her once in the tour, and I flew flew home once for a little three-day break. Right. So two months of being apart with a short visit is hard on any relationship. Yeah. And I think it takes a special person to be able to tolerate that. A lot yep. of a lot of folks, you know, a lot of relationships won't survive mm-hmm. that kind of, and and then you take me he's known for just being on the road nonstop. Like, uh, that's a whole nother level. I mean, I haven't added up the days I've been on tour this summer. I mean, this year, but I guarantee I'm already at probably 150, 200 easily. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to add it up. Cause I was out all of January, most of February and March home for 10 days in April. And then I've been out. Yeah. So, and I don't know about your touring schedule, but it sounds like you live on the road too. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty solid, and I've I've been on it for nine months. In that time, we've had like four weeks off, I think. Uh, you know, wow, we get. I think you're. I think you're winning, bro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I went from I went from you know obviously no touring no touring during COVID um, to just out constantly um and with my wife christina it's uh you know she's she's tolerated it extremely well i've tolerated it well i don't know about you guys but like we um when i was getting ready to go on tour we knew we were going to have all this time apart and we were like talking and communicating a lot about like you know we need to really commit to staying connected um you know talking on the phone setting up zoom dates uh, on a regular basis. Um, so we were talking a big game before I left and, you know, I, I, I got out on the road, um, and we did okay, but like we, we didn't at all, um, you know, do like the regular zoom date thing. It was just, it was much more catch as catch can than we thought it was. Um, and we got about six months into it and we realized that like when I'm out, you know, we stay connected, we check in, we say, how's it going? How's your day? What's coming up? Blah, blah, blah. But we never, um, uh, we, we didn't have like a deep connection. It was, it was much more surface level, much more just kind of checking in. And then during the times we were together in person, it was extremely intense and extremely deep. Um, so we, we reached this point where it was like, maybe, maybe this is just the dynamic and maybe that can be okay. Like when we're apart, we do what we can to stay connected. We obviously check in, we talk and text as much as we can, but we know that that it just can't be as connected as we are when we're in person and we can look forward to that time when I'm home and we're going to have this super intense, uh, you know, deeper connection while I'm there. So it went from, you know, sort of, uh, um, even keel connection when I'm at home and living there, like we have life together, daily life to this dynamic where it's like, if, 
if I'm out, we're, we're connected, but it's, you know, we're not going to get what we get in person. And then when I'm home, we're going to get super intense <laughs> in-person connection. You nailed it. That, that's exactly <laughs> it. And, and there's also that re-entry period. Yeah. Like, like Peregrine is always happy when I get home, but for those months I've been gone, she said it last time. She's like, yeah, I, I started feeling like I was single again. Mm. Even though we talked every day, we right. FaceTime. I mean, having FaceTime is great because you can actually see, you know, the, the thing for me is it, I couldn't FaceTime Beignet. I could see him when she's like, there's Beignet, where, where, where. So at least <laughs> we can communicate. But Peregrine gets really busy with her world. And, and, and I'm jumping around. I'm in a bus full of people when I'm on less tour. Yeah. So yeah, your moment might be five minutes while you're having coffee and then she's got to make an appointment. Right. And you're like, all right, I love you. I love you. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you don't talk the rest of the day, but there's a text here and there. And, and it really takes a lot of trust and, and focus on the music and the art. Cause I know that's what we both promised each other. We said we would not get in, in the way of each other's art, mm. which meant like, let's keep the art first and have the relationship support support your art and and you support my art yeah and and, it, and it's been great but it's still tough and then all of a sudden you're back together and you're getting along great like you know the first i was so grumpy when i got off this tour <laughs> uh i was insufferable and, it, and a lot of it had to do with just you know my, a good friend of mine dying mm. and, and i was just it was just brutal but like she hadn't seen me in two months and she'd been looking forward to like, you know, having her man back. Right. And, and I was just in this, I wasn't really being grumpy. I was just like morose. I was depressed. Yeah. I was really bummed out and that's life. But we had to still process it and talk about it and be like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then like, now we're grooving, you know, to use a drummer's word, mm-hmm. everything. We're having a great time. And usually right when everything really clicks, then it's like a day before she has to leave or before I go back out, then it's like, oh, you're leaving again. Here we go. So uh, I'm going to have – we're going to be together until Wednesday, and then her and Beignet will fly back to Kansas City, and we're out with Clutch for another three three more weeks. And it's going to be a great tour. And then next thing you know, it's going to be September. And you probably noticed this. When you're touring and you have your schedule – and you're booking until 2024. Mm-hmm. Time is hauling ass, dude. It's, it is hard. It's insane. I joined this tour in November. Like it's been nine months, and I I can't believe it. Like I'm already past the halfway point of this tour because yeah. we've got dates through March 2024. So like I passed the halfway point, and I was like, what the what the fuck? Like it's flying. Yeah, it's flying. Yeah. So that's a good thing. The older you get. It's not like those tours in my 20s when a month would be like, oh, my God, this is lasting forever. So I can't even believe like it's August 2023. Yeah. And uh, and that's a little bit of consolation in a way, because like if if you're if you're feeling disconnected from your partner, it's like, you know, the next time you see him seems miles away. But, you know, like it's it's going to fly. And before you know it, there's going to be another break. And um you know, Christine is actually meeting me here uh, today. And then, Badass. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, yeah, I love it having Paragon here with me. And You know, the other thing she does is she does 
all my album artwork. Right, right. Which I'm super stoked on. She does my posters and she'll design t-shirts. So we've just figured out, you know, I use the word punk rock a lot, but really it's just do it yourself. And I, I think the music business in general has become more do it yourself because, you know, yeah. you don't have the revenue stream that the record companies used to have to support everything. So, you know, we all make our living touring now and you got to figure out how to maximize your moving, your, your roving musical store. Right. You know, and, part of mine is your, your relationship is do it yourself yeah. too. Like it's exactly a, a lot of it is unconventional. And to, to quote, uh, uh, the great sex and relationship advice columnist, Dan Savage, a marriage is whatever the two married people say it is. Like you can figure out what works for y'all and do it. To that. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what you got to do as a musician. But uh, man, I love talking to you, Zach. I love it that we can connect over Kansas City. And yeah, we have mutual friends. And, yeah, uh, shout out to shout out to Shay Estes, our dear friend. Yeah, Shay, our dear friend for connecting us. You know, that's the big thing about. I don't know about you, but we got dogs. So oh Shay yeah, is watching our our big dog Bowie. That's the other thing about when you're on tour. Yeah, my yeah. God, I miss my dog. Christina is bringing our dog to Huntsville tonight. And yeah, Shay and her husband, Giuliano, are our dog's uh, godparents. They <laughs> they are awesome. Yeah, yeah. Wow, we got that in common. Right yeah, on, man. brother. Well, it's good talking to you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And let Great me know. talking to you, man. Good luck on your share tour. I'm on my socials. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be shouting, it, shouting it from the social media rooftops. All right, right on, bro. Good talking to you. You too, man. Safe travels. Thanks for doing Bye-bye. it. Bye-bye. Have a great time. There you go. Mike Dillon. Thanks to him for that talk. Check out the new Punkadelic record wherever you get music and go to MikeDillonVibes.com for more info and tour dates. Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with Danny Duchette. Danny is the manager of the beloved Forks Drum Closet in Nashville and is also plugged into the Nashville metal scene. Should be cool. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, play pretty, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.